Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Sydney, uh, where I am a senior lecturer in history at Macquarie University. But I'm coming to you uh, from home, as you might hear in the background, because we're currently under lockdown. So I do apologize for any noise on my end. I am here uh, with the authors of a just amazing and extremely timely book, Uh, This is Jessica Luther. Jessica Luther is a freelance investigative journalist who's written extensively on the intersections of sports and gendered violence. And Kavitha Davidson, Kavitha, pardon me, is a sports and culture writer based in New York at The Athletic. Uh, And the book that they wrote is called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. It's out with UT Press, University of Texas Press in 2020. Uh, welcome, uh, Jessica and Kavitha. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Like I say, I, I love this book. Uh, at parts, I, fe- I felt like you're writing to me because I've been s- suffering this dilemma in the last five years, uh, loving sports when I've really felt like they didn't love me back. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering how you all came up with this project. Yeah, it's hard to remember because it was something it was like five years ago or something at this point uh we think that it was around a super bowl in the u.s which is such a huge sporting event and every year there's these kind of articles that go out that are pretty condescending in tone that are like written for women who do not watch football american football and it will be like how to survive a super bowl party And as Kavitha always notes, they always like end with a dip recipe or something. Uh, And Kavitha and I clearly are sports fans and do not, those articles are not for us. And uh, we were thinking about writing sort of like a snarky rejoinder to those. Uh, And I had met with a friend here in town who at some point was like, it'd be great if you wrote a book on, you know, the issues in sports uh, that bother you and, I, this was like back burner kind of thing in my head. And it was just this kind of 
perfect moment where Kavitha and I were talking about this one small idea and it kind of blossomed. And I said, well, my friend had this other idea. Maybe we should think about a bigger project. And we took it to the University of Texas Press. And we had this editor, Casey, who's like a miracle worker. And he's the one that really massaged it into this much more professional and <laughs> and yeah we can't project. overstate how snarky we were we were going to be with this <laughs> and so that's basically how we ended up on this idea and then we had a pretty you know we had a big brainstorming session where we talked about all the different things in sports that we could possibly write about uh, and that got whittled down and eventually I think there are 14 chapters um I think. Uh, and even that there were supposed to be 16 and it ended up 14. And so there were other things we could have said, but we kind of picked the things that we were most interested in and we thought other people would be as well. Yeah. I did wonder, um, how you all came up with the chapters that you, that you decided on because, um, you know, there, there, as you are say, there's so many things you could, you could pick up on, but, um, you've hit most of the major ones, but I did wonder how you decided. Yeah, I think that, you know, there were, like you said, we hit most of the major ones. There were definitely more than a handful that were just kind of no brainers, concussions, gendered violence, you know, things that, you know, as women in sports media, we have written about and just confronted both professionally and in our own fandom when we're just like at the bar um, that just were obvious choices. And then there were a few that, you know, like Jessica said, there were a couple of chapters we didn't end up doing. Maybe they were a little bit more esoteric. One of them involved former President Trump. Um, so uh, so, so we, we did make some decisions on that. But, you know, it, it's really interesting, actually, when it came time to dividing the chapters, um, it that also just happened extremely organically. And, you know, we've done a couple of these interviews where where I've said, you know, Jessica has written incredible pieces um, regularly with a writing partner. And this was the first thing I'd ever written with another person. So I wasn't really sure what this process would be like. And it was way more seamless than I think we could have imagined, e- even when it comes down to like our different, our voices, um, you know, we're not the same type of writer, um, but somehow, uh, you know, when you mix all the chapters up, our editor has said this, our peer reviewers said this, our parents have yeah, said I was this. Say, my, my dad tried to guess which ones I drafted and which ones Kavitha did, and he couldn't even tell. So I, I yeah. was something about curious. it just worked. Yeah. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. And I wondered myself, I was like, uh, did they divide the chapters? Did they were they both working on each chapter? I really, <laughs> I really couldn't tell. So we did divide the chapters, uh, and that was also easy. <laughs> Honestly, like we deciding which ones we would each do the first big draft of, and so one of us would do the first draft of it, uh, which was you know most of the work, the comprehensive, putting it all together with the narrative. And then we would, that's when we would begin the back and forth passing and editing and Casey was involved in, in that part. But um, yeah, so we did actually, one of us would draft each one and then submit it to the other. Well, I, I am really curious, but I won't ask you to reveal your <laughs> secrets. Uh, but uh, I, I do, I want, like I, I, I kind of said at the beginning, I felt like this project was written for me in some ways, both because I'm constantly telling people, because I teach sports history and here in Australia, I'm, I'm in the media sometimes, um, that, you know, sports is always political. And yet at the same time, you know, I'm also the person who 
in the past five years has been like, I just give up. I can't, <laughs> I can't deal with it all, all the time anymore. And frankly, lockdown and um, having a, having a child has given me a great opportunity to kind of give up some of my fandom. But I, I wonder if that's who you're writing for. Like who, when you, when you wrote the book, who did you imagine your audience would be? Well, I think that, you know, going off of what Jessica said about kind of the the origin story of of the book, part of that frustration um, that bred some of the snark, the initial snark, um, was that all of those pieces, so much of sports media doesn't seem to be geared toward fans like us or fans who think like us. Um, and we wanted to write a book. I don't think we had any one particular demographic or one particular type of person in mind, but we definitely know just from our own both personal and professional interactions that there are scores of fans who are not served by, you know, mainstream sports media, um, at least not holistically, who do think about, um, you know, who do think about sports in a progressive lens and a political lens, um, who maintain their fandoms despite some of these dilemmas um, and whatever that looks like. And I think one of the things that we found in writing this book was that there is no one person that that looks like, or there is no one way that fandom um, expresses itself or manifests. So uh, yeah, I think we were just trying to fill a, a big hole um, in in whatever way we could, uh, you know, geared toward fans that might think about these things in a different way than I would say more kind of small C conservative media tends to cater to. Well, let's jump into one of the, the chapters then. And I should um, say for listeners that each one of the chapters, I think, is really rich uh, by itself. So for people who are maybe teaching sports studies uh, courses, some of these chapters would be perfect for raising, I think, uh, a, a huge number of questions in class, provoking discussion. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think we have time to talk about all, all of them. I, I could point out some ones that I felt were most salient for me, although I have to admit to both of you, I grew up in Cleveland, so you might you might already mm. understand some of the ones I, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, well, let's go Guardians. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. I do love the, I love the change. I love the new name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, tell, tell me uh, about how, how, um, how do you learn to uh, support a team, even if it are, has a racist mascot, uh, Cleveland, <laughs> Cleveland. Yeah, I think, I think we both come down on the idea that you probably shouldn't support that mascot, yeah. <laughs> that it, but you can still support a team, right? And it's sort of making those choices. Even the native activists that we interview at the beginning and end of that chapter talks about, you know, standing outside the Washington NFL team game and asking people to like turn their sweatshirts inside out. Like there are ways that you can, as a fan protest these kind of these mascots when you don't agree with them while still supporting the team that you love, especially, you know, I, I grew up in a family where the Florida state Seminoles were a huge deal. And that was a school that I ended up going to, to go watch football games. And I never knew anything else. And so I, was there was an ignorance to to my fandom in, in that case and I've had to learn as an adult to to really question what's going on there with that mascot and I now you know I had to get rid I or I chose to get rid of everything in my house that has the image the profile of a native man uh on it so I think like this is a lot of what we are doing in the book right of trying to find that 
that space where you can feel comfortable as a fan. Cause on some level we're all individuals working within messed up systems and there's only so much that any individual can do in those systems. And so in this case, yeah, you can decide how much you're going to embrace that mascot. Uh, and I personally think you should not be <laughs> embracing native mascots in large part because native and indigenous people have asked us to stop doing it. And that should be a good enough reason for all of us. Yeah. I think one of the things this chapter does so well is it takes on that argument that we hear all the time, which is that, Oh, actually this is about honoring native peoples. And obviously in the case of Cleveland, I mean, it's, it's really clear that that couldn't have been the case. I mean, chief Wahoo is a Mm -hmm. disgusting racist caricature, right? But there right. are some teams out there that maybe had more of a plausible, you know, case to make. But I think you all do a great job of showing the actual harm that is is kind of meted out upon indigenous people when their names are used. Um, so I, I thought that was really great. Did when you were doing this chapter, and now I'm going to guess, of course, now that Jessica, you wrote this chapter. <laughs> I did. Um, I did. How um, how was it when you were talking to to native activists about about the the different responses that they had um, to these different depictions of indigenous peoples? Like, what what was your process in approaching them? And well, I uh, I knew about the work of Jacqueline Keeler and um, Adrian Keene. And so I wanted to specifically talk to them. Temeris was someone that I had come across at some point, And I wanted someone who was an athlete in the discussion, like a native athlete to, to talk about um, their own feelings around all of this. And, but she was also an activist against these mascots. So I wasn't surprised by what they had to tell me, you know, and I, but I knew that they had all thought long and hard about this issue and had really spent a lot of time with it. Cause I do think a lot of the things that we write about in the book, most people come to them very casually, right? And they make up their opinion based on very little information, a lot of it grounded in their own fandom and what they've heard around them. And so I think. And I'm sure this was true for Kavitha as well. In doing this work, you're trying to find the people who've actually spent time just thinking about these things um, and, you know, talking years, they've dedicated their lives uh, to this. And so I, you know, I thought that they could really bring that perspective of like why this is not, as you said, um, even the ones that seem to quote unquote honor native people, like that they're not harmless, um, that they don't actually honor and wanted to talk to them and talk through why that's true so that we could tell people what it is that native people are thinking about this. They've been telling us for decades and decades and decades. Um, but just sort of, you know, translating that into a quick chapter on this. Yeah. I, um, as I say, I'm from Cleveland. So this one struck home for me, especially this year, um, and seeing some of the debates among people on Facebook about the name change, uh, but obviously, well, uh, does well-deserved name needed to be changed. Uh, Kavitha, I'd love to know what your favorite chapter was writing because I want to talk about it, (laughs) but um, (laughs) I don't want to try to guess because I honestly, I tell you, I couldn't guess. Uh, I mean, I think 
Hmm. That's, that's always a hard question for me to answer. I will say just in general, one of my favorite things about the process of writing this book, and Jessica and I have talked about this together, is reading each other's chapters, learning things about things that we thought we already knew about, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's you know, stood out to me in the racist mascot chapter um, by Jessica was, uh, you know, I, the question that I'm always kind of um, wrapped with is, okay, we, we have this history that has been this long and violent history that has been established. Uh, we understand where that side of this is coming from. I genuinely could not understand how strong people's associations were with their own teams and how personal it was to ask them to confront that and to ask them to possibly change that, to change their logo, the team name, what have you. Um, and and one, you know, in the introduction, we, we interview uh, a sports psychologist, Dr. Susan Whitbourne, um, who talks about fandom and identity and the fact that your fandom is formed um, when, you know, very early on in childhood, probably earlier than, you know, your 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 proclivities for music or movies or art are formed. Um, sports tend to be formed earlier and they tend to be formed with some kind of either familial connection, you know, the whole like grandpa took me to a ball game thing or, um, or, or some connection to your hometown. For me, my sports fandom is very much rooted in me, you know, being from New York City. Um, and, and that early formation of your fandom is is what feels like is getting attacked when some of these institutions get criticized and 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 try to get reformed um, and then the second thing uh, that that I learned from that chapter that really spoke to um, how personal this issue is is that there are studies that show that not only is our, our racist mascots and and imagery that are is denigrating to indigenous peoples um, uh, psychologically damaging to indigenous people, but it, it it creates a positive psychological effect for white people. So whether, you know, how subconscious that is, you're not only having your identity attacked, but you're having something that really does at a, at a cellular level, make you feel good attacked. Um, and that was, that was one of those things that, that I, uh, that I did not, did not know. And, and that I was, um, that I, that I learned from, from reading Jessica's chapter, I would say probably the, the chapter that was that was most meaningful for me to work on was um, the gendered violence chapter. You know, this is something that you know both Jessica and I have written extensively about in our career. She wrote an entire book. Her entire first book was about campus sexual assault and college football. Um, and uh, and and you know there there's just such a bevy of, of expertise and of opinion out there. Um, you know, for me myself, I'm a sexual assault survivor, so obviously I had a, a very personal connection to this to this chapter. But I think what I got out of it was, you know, not only just a sense that so many people do go through these dilemmas that, you know, they they are still going to root for the laundry and root for their team. And you can't, you sometimes can't break that connection. And I've personally experienced that. But when a particular player um, takes the field, you know, one of one of the women that I interviewed said, you know, she literally just has to sit down. <laughs> you know, she'll be standing throughout the entire game and she'll have to sit down. Um, another person I interviewed said, you know, she couldn't stop rooting for the Yankees, which is the team that I root for as well. Um, but whenever role as Chapman, who is their closer, who has been accused of, um, of 
of beating his girlfriend and shooting uh, his gun in her general vicinity in their garage. Um, you know, when he takes the mound, uh, every for every strikeout that he records, she started a charity that donates to um, a, an anti-domestic violence uh, support group. So, you know, just being able to um, I think uncover these different strategies and how innovative people are with these strategies, right? Um, because it's it's hard. You, some people, you know, for other chapters, some people literally said, "I can't watch football anymore," or "I just don't." And Jessica's actually a very good example of that. But you know, for other people, the way that we navigate these things is so is so personal and so kind of specific to ourselves. Um, and that that's probably something that that I got out of that chapter more than more than more than others. Yeah, I think uh, you've 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 brought up a lot of stuff actually, and I, I think um, one of the things that this book does so well is that actually it doesn't answer that question for us as readers. Like, it doesn't say, "Oh, here's how you still love sports." Just ignore Haroldus Chapman, and it goes away <laughs> um, because it doesn't. And our answers are all going to be um, are all going to be kind of personal and contextual, but we have this agency to to make changes as well we've, I, this is sideline, I guess, but in Australia, there's been a now two year long case of a player accused of sexual assault. His name's Jack DeBellin and he was stood down. There's a, a rule in the NRL here to stand down players accused of serious crime, sexual assault, obviously ser- very serious crime. So he was stood down for two years with pay. And um, the, so we've had a two year long argument about, whether or not um, this guy's been justifiably or unjustifiably punished. Meanwhile, the woman who, who's made the accusation, um, this we don't know who that is because of some of the laws here in Australia, um, but she has had to kind of watch this play out every week in the press as people go, well, the Dragons would have done better if Jack DeBellin could have played mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and part of me goes, well, I don't think, you know, somebody, credibly accused of a crime should be out there on the field at all. Like we, the league should, should do something. And I also feel for the woman who has to watch this play out in the press every week. I, I just don't know how to, how to, how as a, as a spectator to respond, but I'm very fortunate in that I don't have any connection with the NRL. So if I don't want to watch, it's very easy for me not to do. Like I just go, uh, yeah, I don't want to watch. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, so every one of the chapters in the book, I, I'd say, really asks questions of us as viewers, as spectators, as fans, and made me think, okay, well, what do I do? What do I do if my team has a, as if one of the people that I thought is a great player has accused of sexual assault, if one of the teams that I like has a crap owner? Um, et cetera, et cetera. What, what am I supposed to do? It didn't, it didn't always answer the question to which I really appreciated. Um, oh, good. The <laughs> book was originally titled how to love sports when they don't love you back. So yeah. like when they did the first press release and everything, that was a title. And as we were writing, that was one thing that Kavitha and I learned is that we can't tell people how that sometimes we feel like maybe we could prescribe a couple things, but in general, it's too individualized and it's too personal and it's too tied to someone's identity. And we all draw lines in the sands for all kinds of different reasons and at different places. And that this is just hope, you know, we wanted hopefully to set up for each person reading, like, 
where where are you going to draw your line and how are you going to decide that for yourself? But we couldn't really tell. We, there's no blanket answer to these issues because they're, they're all so complicated. Well, there were some chapters, I would say, that had maybe more hopeful outlook, mm-hmm. like uh, your chapter on watching women's basketball when people tell you you're the only one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... You know, are there opportunities to be sports fans in different ways, in progressive ways, in, in socially productive ways? I think absolutely. Um, I think that, first of all, just, you know, being I, I Jessica and I say this a lot, but um, being a women's basketball player, being a, a women, a woman athlete is a radical act in itself. And I think you could say the same thing about being a, a fan of women's sports. Um, so just just being, you know, just giving some of your dollars to the women's sports industry, I think is, a, is an act of progressivism. Um, but yeah, I mean, and it's funny because that chapter was written before the the meat of that chapter was written before the latest CBA, the latest collective bargaining agreement was struck, before the last at this point, two regular seasons of incredible growth um, that the WNBA has seen, and uh, and and women's sports in general just just gaining a lot more respect. Um, you know, we're currently in a in a time of turmoil for the NWSL, unfortunately. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think that like that was absolutely one of the chapters that we were most hopeful about, and there are actually a few chapters in there that. We weren't like the the racist mascot chapter is a really good example. We were absolutely not hopeful at the end of that, right? Um, and and I think you could say a similar thing with the, uh, the the NCAA chapter and how college athletes are being exploited. And there there are several chapters like that where we were like, well, that's obsolete now. <laughs> or um, you know, we we couldn't obviously we couldn't update. Um, the, uh, you know, those chapters with like the, the Washington football team changing its name. Um, but w- we were very happy to see, um, to be proven wrong on, on the fact that, you know, we never really thought that Dan Snyder would change the name and, 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 you know, not that he did it out of the goodness of his heart, but we, we were very <laughs> happy to see that we were wrong about that. Yeah. I, um, I, it's funny cause I kind of felt that thread through like sometimes, hopeful, sometimes not hopeful. Another thread I I read through, and maybe this is just my reading, but is this kind of um, critique of sports as big business or sports capital, but then at times like also um, an okay, an okayness with it. Like, okay, the new stadium that you want, (laughs) it might be a a, uh, living with the new stadium you didn't want, rather you didn't want to pay for, uh, might be a critique of, of the way in which sports capital and um, governments work together to rob taxpayers to make rich people richer. Um, but then maybe we shouldn't worry about free markets, uh, baseball's free market. So can you unpack that a little bit? I, I don't know who wrote those chapters. I, I, I that's Kavitha, 100%. <laughs> Um, to give you some background, my first real job as a sports writer was I, I was a sports I was the sports columnist at Bloomberg for three years, and I I do come you know I I am a progressive myself in my politics. I don't know if I would call myself a staunch capitalist, but I do also come at um, I come at my writing and I come at these uh, these issues from a, from a standpoint of capitalism is the system in which we have to work. That's just not going to change anytime soon. So how can we? Make it better within the parameters that we are given, within the pa- parameters that that we that we that we work in, and I think that that's also how you reach 
people who are going to be skeptical whenever you start talking about social issues. You make the fiscal argument. You make the argument that women's sports deserve investment, not just because it is the right thing to do, but because you are going to make money from doing that. Um, and that's frankly the only reason that we've seen most most progress. That's the, you know, we, we've seen major sponsors invest in women's sports because they realized they were leaving money on the table by not doing so, that it was a growth market. We have seen, you know, like I said, Dan Snyder didn't have some like random come to Jesus moment where he realized the name of his team was racist. Major sponsors from FedEx to Nike to Pepsi forced his hand on that, right? So there are ways in which capitalism and the sports industrial complex can actually be used to further some of these progressive goals. So within that framework, you know, I think that uh, you know, when we talk about when we talk about stadium subsidies, and and my my approach to my work has always been there are some ways in which in which sports are unique and treated uniquely within like tax law within um, you know United States legislation, what have you, and then there are some ways that it's just treated like every other business, and and pointing out the flaws in that or pointing out broader flaws. So stadium subsidies is a form of corporate welfare that, for example, Amazon would have been afforded had their headquarters been allowed to move to New York City during that entire debate. It was exactly the same debate that we have around stadium subsidies. Now, my argument in the baseball free market chapter. And again, that chapter was written before, um, before, before what will likely be um, enough labor strife in this off season to perhaps see a strike as, uh, as, as the union and the league try to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement. Um, but for the most part, what we have seen in baseball is the strongest union in sports. And one could argue in a very weakened union uh, climate in America, the MLBPA is the strongest union in America. Um, what we have seen is some kind of understanding from owners that relative labor peace is necessary for the strength of the game, um, that you have to keep your players happy on some level to avoid another strike. The 94 strike almost killed the entire league. And then as a from a fan perspective and from an equality perspective, you know, I come at it again. I'm a Yankees fan, so you can absolutely rightfully accuse me of of rooting for the richest team and having um, an interest in here. But I come at it from a perspective where every single team's owner is a billionaire. <laughs> like every single team, there are different levels of billionaires. But at this at this point, we're talking about the one percent versus the point one percent, right? Every single team can actually afford to spend, maybe not Yankee level of money, but definitely more than Tampa Bay Rays level money. And that, you know, the idea that sports being the kind of not totally free market, there are lots of ways in which sports actually benefit from, let's say, antitrust exemptions and things like that. But sports being um, as close to a free market as we might see isn't entirely a bad thing because the consequences aren't children not eating or, um, you know, schools being underfunded um, or any of kind of the, the bad inequalities that we see with free market capitalism, the consequences are your team doesn't win as many games or your team doesn't sign that major free agent that they might be able to afford, right? So that, you know, that's kind of, that was the, the dual perspective that I, that I was coming at that from, that I think, you know, consequences and just perspective of what we're talking about when we talk about an economic system like capitalism really does matter. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I found the, those chapters in particular, thinking about some of those uh, chapters together, to be really illuminating. Because, of course, you 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 don't think about the the money lost, the money left on the table by maybe players like LeBron James because of the impact of uh, salary cap in the NBA and. Well, yeah. And that's often, you know, that's lionized, right? Like, you know, Tom Brady taking a pay cut in order to build a super team um, in the NFL. The NFL, meanwhile, does not has this kind of myth of parity because every team feels like it's in it. But if you actually look at who's won the Super Bowls, you know, Tampa Bay last year, notwithstanding, it's a it's a handful of the same teams that are in the championship game and in the Super Bowl every year. Right. It's just Tom Um, Brady, really. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's a whole conversation. But um, (laughs) but um, but, you know, the fact that players like LeBron are, are you know, that there, there's some virtue in them taking a pay cut, they shouldn't have to be put in that position. They're taking a pay cut to, you know, that money that they are not spending is going into the pockets of the of the billionaires who own their teams. Um, you know, and this is a very kind of, this is, this is a labor versus management conversation, even though we're talking about millionaires versus billionaires, but it still is that same dynamic. So, I get I get very kind of frustrated with fans who complain about players being overpaid or who have this kind of romanticized notion about players taking pay cuts and being quote unquote unselfish because I don't think there's any other industry where we would be where we wouldn't be okay with a worker being selfish and getting as much money as they are as they are owed or as they are worth from their employer. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I it makes me wonder. So you had kind of hinted earlier, uh, Kavitha, that maybe Jessica had given up the NFL. I don't want to speak for you, Jessica, but I, I no, no, I've given up football. In that, the, yes. In the process of writing these books, and I'd love to hear Jessica why you gave up football. In the process of writing the book, did you all make decisions about what sports to stop loving? Mm, that's such a good question. Uh, well, I gave up. Well, college football was my great love. And I gave that up. I wasn't never a huge NFL person, so that wasn't that hard for me. But I gave up college football probably about five years ago. And I report on college football and sexual violence a lot. So that alone probably would have been enough. But I have issues with uh, concussions and people sacrificing their bodies and brains and, you know, the NFL not caring about that or lying about it. Uh, Certainly on the collegiate level, the fact that, in the U.S., you know, they're not paid to be doing that labor that can be so detrimental to them. And of course, here in the U.S., we don't have socialized health care. So then they're carrying these um, injuries, both to their brains and bodies, with them through their life without knowing that they'll be able to even receive health care for it. Like it was just kind of all of that stuff put together. I just couldn't I just couldn't watch it anymore. And I'm also just like a really sad person to watch it with. <laughs> like my encyclopedia <laughs> about coaches and players is is pretty much a bummer. Uh, and so it just didn't have, it wasn't fun for me anymore. And I did feel complicit in a lot of ways um, as a fan that I just couldn't stomach for myself. Um, as far as other, you know, working on this, certainly for me, the mascot chapter, which we've already talked about, like that, writing that and really have, and like writing about, you know, the Florida State team in particular with their mascot and really made me personally come to terms. I had I had been sort of getting rid of that from my house and I like 
did like a sweep where I really went through and just said, I can't do this anymore. I can't support this. Um, I certainly can't write this and then support this. I would feel like a, you know, a big hypocrite in lots of ways. I'm trying to think if there was anything, I mean, my favorite sport to watch is tennis and I did write the tennis chapter, which is on some level funny because I hate as a fan thinking about all those Mm -hmm. issues in tennis, like that's very much a space where I want to just like plug my ears and just watch it and enjoy it. Uh, and you can't like, I, I wouldn't really be able to do that. Um, but you know, I wrote a bit in there about pay inequity in the sport and, Novak Djokovic shows up as someone (laughs) who's not for it. And that has certainly carried with me as I have been watching tennis. I kind of knew that, like I knew it, I went looking for it. Um, but I hadn't really spent time with it and thinking about and analyzing it and thinking about, you know, his earnings versus Serena's and like, how can this person care? Like he just makes so much money. Like, how do you still have a problem with it? So in like small ways here and there, I I can see stuff shifting for me in my, in my sports fandom. And I will just say the final thing, I mean, Kavitha, all the brilliant stuff that she was just talking about. One of the things that we come back to over and over, I think in the book is that these athletes are laborers. And we often don't like to talk about them that explicitly as workers. And I think just doing this project really brought that to the fore over and over and over again. And that has really, it wasn't that I wasn't thinking of that before, but it just wasn't sort of the first thing that I thought of. And I can tell now that when I go to watch sports, that is something that I am just bringing with me every time that like these people are working And we need to respect that about them, Uh, even if it's fun, even if it looks like they're having a grand old time and I'm enjoying it, that these are their jobs and we should respect that and, and honor them in the same way we would any other employee. Yeah, I think that's actually allowed me to, like, this is always a really hard question for me because I would say even before I started writing this book, you know, when, when you see how the sausage is made it, it, yes. I don't want yeah. to say it lessens your fandom necessarily. I think there are definitely ways in which that happens, but it definitely shifts. It changes the nature of your fandom, right? So like I still love like with an irrational part of my being, the teams that I grew up with, especially the Yankees, but I also write critically about them and um, I'm probably more cynical than the average fan is who doesn't, who hasn't seen how the sausage is made, um, so to speak. And on the other hand, you know, to Jessica's point just now about athletes being laborers, you know, there, there's always kind of been this narrative around Derek Jeter, for example, especially in media that, you know, Derek Jeter you know, is is obviously beloved in New York. Hall, just, was just inducted into the Hall of Fame. Anyone who is my age who grew up will probably tell you that Derek Jeter was their favorite player of all time. Derek Jeter was also known in New York media for being a boring interview. He never said anything interesting. He was very corporate and buttoned up, um, and 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 all of that. And and a lot of people will tell you, especially like beat writers who covered the Yankees in the '90s, that Derek Jeter didn't necessarily love baseball the way that 
fans love baseball the way that some players do. Alex Rodriguez loves baseball in in a way that not a lot of players do, but also maybe not Derek Jeter. You know, he wasn't the kind of guy who would go home and watch other teams' games unless he was prepping to play them and that kind of thing. But at the same time, like, and I think that most fans, when they hear, they don't want to hear something like that because they don't want to believe that this thing that they love so much isn't the number one priority in the lives of the people who give us this, the people whose labor produces this thing. Um, but at the same time, again, they're human beings, right? So Derek Jeter is now retired. He is a part owner of a team. He's running the Marlins, but he's also married and has kids and that is more important to him. And I think that being able to, like being on the professional side of this has given me as a fan more appreciation for that, that, you know, for 20 years, he put his head down and did his job. And it was a job to him. And he did it better than almost anybody else in the history of the game did, right? And that's okay. Like, we don't need, I don't need as a fan to, to, to identify with players having the same connection to these games than that I do. And I think that that's really, that's such an important step in fandom and in ex- accepting, you know, these athletes as holistic human beings and not just kind of entertainers, you know, for, for us. Yeah. I think it makes me think about, um, I I think what some people have called millennial fandom, like this rejection of team and instead this interest in, in players as laborers and as human beings, maybe more so than, you know, for the pieces that the laundry, as you, as you all put it, which I think is a good way of putting it. And I've seen Mm -hmm. my own fandom, I mean, Cleveland sports fan, I guess you don't have much of a choice. And also, <laughs> admittedly, I went to Ohio State um, and I've had some falling out of love with college football and Ohio mm-hmm. State, just like maybe, Jessica, you've had falling out of love uh, with mm-hmm. SSU for some sa- similar reasons, it sounds like. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but one thing I've, I've appreciated in moving to Australia now five years ago is getting to pick up a whole new set of sports and realizing from the very beginning that they're just kind of entertainments and that the players are laborers and workers and I can pick and choose what I what I like and don't like and can pick what teams I like and what narratives I like and abandon them when I don't like them and it's been very freeing as a fan Um, that's nice we we just got an MLS team here in Austin which is our first I live in Austin Texas it's our first professional team so it's been very exciting and it's been interesting to decide to be a fan uh, of this team. And just, you know, I joined the supporters groups. I'm in their Slack. I feel like an anthropologist <laughs> <laughs> reading the Slack. If they have not been, the team has not Do gelled. They it has not been, <laughs> they, I assume that, I mean, my name is on there. Like, it's not like I'm hiding. Uh, and and I love it. It's very fun to go to the games and be in the fan among the fans and on all that sort of stuff. At the same time, there's this player and he's been in the league for a really long time and has had a series of concussions. And he's been out for weeks now after getting a concussion and seeing fans who are like, he should be back already. And I'm like, no, like I assume he's done. Like he should probably stop playing soccer at this point. Like this is now a danger to him. It sounds like, uh, and it's just been, it's interesting to 
try to be a fan and like this is the most like I know all the players I know what they look like when they're running I can you know tell and I I know how many goals are scored all that kind of stuff I'm doing that stuff but at the same time I also just feel this intense I don't know tension in that fandom of being like no we're not gonna we're not gonna (laughs) do this stuff again like I'm not gonna participate and of course I'm just built to be nervous that what happens when one of the players harms someone off the pitch right and like how always as a community will we respond to that you know cross my fingers i'll never have to find out uh that's me being naive um so it's been interesting to me in that way of like being a brand new fan but also extremely cautious in large part because i you know, I am who I am, but also we did this book and I'm thinking about these things all the time. And I was really thinking about the concussion chapter when the stuff around this player came up and I just was like, no, like he should just retire. I don't care about the team in comparison to this man's life. I, I, um, by the way, I love the concussion chapter. And I think this is something that's just coming up in Australia. And so I have students in my sport unit that I think I'll be telling them, no, you guys have to read this this chapter because they don't really understand the discussion in the U S and they're getting some of it here now in Australia, just the beginnings of players kind of um, donating brains for brain science and understanding the effects of CTE on rugby and Australian rules, football players and things like that. And I think this is going to hit in Australia in a big way in about five years when Hmm. the, when the weight of enough testimony, the weight of enough uh, brain science is available to show that it's almost as bad as it is in the NFL. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we started the whole book with that chapter because it's not capital P political, right? It's like people's brains and, and they're, um, and thinking about what it means to be a fan of these sports where people are injuring their brains and are we complicit and like, what does all this mean? And, uh, it seemed like a good way in because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't conservative or progressive. Like it's just, it's a health thing. And most sports fans in some way will have to deal with this at some point in their fandom. Um, even if they're just doing, as we tried to point out in the chapter, like youth sports, right? Like this is just an issue from the top to the bottom um, that really gets at how how do we make sense of that uh, as fans? And I don't, I don't. That was one chapter that I we finished, and I was like, I don't know the answer here, <laughs> um, which is kind of why we left it on sort of hopeful words from a researcher. Um, but it's still hard. Even after doing all of this, I don't know how I feel about all those things and where my place as a fan, where I, how I relate to it and how what choices I'm making in relationship to it. Yeah. Well, you, you started with your non-political chapter, but I will say you ended on maybe your most yeah, political chapter. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think we have full time to do all the justice to it, but I get the sense that neither of you are going to stop being political sports uh, fans and sports writers anytime soon. So I'm wondering. I wouldn't know how. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honestly, honestly, yeah. When people say stick to sports, or I just want sports to be my my escape, honestly, genuinely, I'm like that. That sounds so nice. I, know. I would Good love for you. I would love to watch <laughs> the Olympics and not think about all of the things that I'm thinking about, right? Um, but yeah, it I, like so that is you know not not being political with your sports is a privilege in itself. 
Absolutely. And although I have to admit, I, I benefit from a certain amount of privilege in that I always say that sports being political is my bread and butter because as an academic who teaches and writes about sports, I'm always getting called into the media to just basically reiterate this point, which you all show again and again and again, which is no matter what sport you're involved in, no matter what you know uh, side of the spectrum you're, you lie on politically, sports are political. You can't unpack that. Right. They're as much a product of the culture as anything else. Yeah. So I I wanted to ask uh, before I let you all go, um, what projects are you working on now? What is the next thing we can uh, look forward to reading um, from you all in either the the press or, um, you know, in in another book like this? Another book? My goodness. I do not have a book project. I I went back to school, so I'm actually working on a dissertation, which maybe one day will be a book about the University of Texas women's basketball team in the 1970s and race and gender. Yeah, so that's my that's like my big thing. And as a freelancer, I kind of always have little fires burning. Uh, I'm working on a exciting podcast series that we haven't announced yet, so I can't say but people should look for that in Mm -hmm. january um and i have a piece coming out soon about women's baseball i decided that i would be like the expert on this apparently a few years ago and so every once in a while i get asked to write about women's baseball which i i interviewed baseball australia for the piece so there is a whole section on australia in it so that's coming out sometime soon Great. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a staff writer at the Athletics, so you know you'll see a column from me every week on something. Right now, I'm writing on um, on the on the on the NWSL. Um, I've got a Q and A coming out on Thursday with Steve Kerr's son because he's a writing assistant on Ted Lasso, which is just a show that I adore. Um, and I'm working on a piece about Broadway's return in New York, which is not really sports related, um, but how Broadway is back, but it's not back for everyone, that kind of thing. So whole, whole mix of stuff we're trying to do at the, at the culture section of the athletic. <laughs> no, that all sound, that all sounds uh, great. And I will look forward to reading um, your pieces that are coming out with the athletic Kavitha and Jessica, I'm, I'm going to look for that, that book manuscript. <laughs> when, oh, okay. Give me a couple years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, yeah. I know. I know those couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you both so much for joining me. Um, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you for having us on and talking to us about the book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is great. Thank you. I um, a huge recommend for all sports uh, fans and people maybe falling out of love with sports, but also really useful um, listeners out there for people who teach units in sports history or um, maybe want to include some sports studies in your in your classes. Uh, these chapters are hugely digestible and great for uh, students. So I've been speaking with uh, Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson. They are the authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan, out from University of Texas Press in 2020. Um, And I am Keith Rathbone, and I'm speaking to you from Sydney, where I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network.